Bob Stacy, candidate for Metro District 6, current occupant of the seat in Metro District 6. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Jefferson. <laughs> this is X-ray remote. It's like the rest of the world, right? It is, except you don't have to put on your makeup prior. It's just because right, it's exactly. radio. Uh, you don't things, have to. Things get disconnected. Yeah, somebody did call at seven in the morning. I was listening to the news headlines, waking up, and um, so I let it go. And then the guy called right back. So I'm like, okay, it's an emergency. Uh, I hit it. He says, "Hey, Juan." <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I blocked it. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> it's okay. Somehow. And maybe it's just because you're both Metro counselors that Juan Carlos Gonzalez's number oh. got mixed with yours. So we talked to him okay. at 7. And so they were scrambling trying to talk to Juan Carlos Gonzalez and said, we're calling Juan Carlos Gonzalez, and it's Bob Stacy, And I don't think they live together. <laughs> now everything is clear. <laughs> Metro District 6 covers Northeast, Southeast, and Southwest Portland. It's been represented by you since 2012. That means you're entering, I think, your term limit after three terms, right? So this is officially your That's last right. term unless you change the rules. Final term, Jefferson. Yeah. Is the most important initiative that you're going to bring forth during your third term is to allow for uh, unlimited terms of service in the Metro Council? <laughs> no, thank you, sir. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm generally opposed to term limits as an infringement on people's right to choose whom they want to elect, but I have no ambition uh, to go into my middle 70s in public office. What's the thing you're but proudest you of? The offer. <laughs> what's, what's, I don't know if it's up to me to be able to offer it. What's the thing you're proudest of over the last eight years since you've been serving? You know, it, to some extent, uh, and I take this with all the possible negative implications, Metro has been on rocket fuel for the past seven and a half years. Um, it had a parks and nature program that was region-wide. Uh, but with Tom Hughes as president and me as one of his sidekicks, we now have a regional affordable housing program. We now have a convention center hotel, which is closed and empty, as is the convention center, but something that people argued about for a decade before that. We are on the cusp of funding a regional homeless services program, which will be on the same ballot I'm on uh, next Tuesday. Uh, and we are poised, scrambling, but poised to have a major multi-billion dollar transportation investment strategy before the voters in November, which will build the last leg of the original light rail plan, the Southwest Corridor out the Tigard and Tualatin Long Barber, and we'll make safe for human beings a whole bunch of killer arterials all across the region and improve bus service on those arterials as well. So um, this requires the assent of the voters, requires that we connect with voters, but ultimately it means that this region is achieving the capacity of this dream of having a government that can solve problems at the scale they exist, at the regional scale, not the city limits. So, I'm very pleased to have been along for this highly accelerated ride. There's an old line that it's something akin to a war happens when the survivor, when the last survivor of the last war has passed away. That I look <laughs> at folks who uh, protest wearing Nazi paraphernalia, and I think that it is not an accident 
that we are now 80 years removed from World War II. And so those who could remind us about the uh, cost of fighting against fascism are not there to remind us. I think it is not a coincidence that the Civil War, to break up this country, happened happened 80 years after the Revolutionary War, when there was no living memory of the Revolutionary War, what it took to forge the nation, when Robert E. Lee was deciding to pick up arms against the nation. I think about you, and you ain't dead, of course, and you're not going to die soon, <laughs> thankfully. But I think about you, and you were, you were one of the young Turks in the generation that brought much of how we now define what we love about Portland and Oregon. If people love land use planning, if people love public beaches, if people love a regional government, if people love the bottle bill, that that fomented in our region and in our city and in our state when, you know, before some of us were born and when some of us were very small children. And you were one of the, the young Turks working on some of that stuff. And now there are people when Metro who... who vote on Metro, like, what the heck is that? Why do we have this regional government who don't remember the fights over it? And I want to dwell on that a little bit. Is this a fair characterization? Do you under, do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down over here, Bob? <laughs> well, I may be too close to the subject to, to have the proper perspective. But yes, Jefferson, I was in the room with my voice cracking as a 26-year-old uh, starting off lawyer for 1,000 Friends of Oregon when Neil Goldschmidt and the rest of the Columbia Region Association of Governments decided to adopt an urban growth boundary, the very first in the, in the state, first in the country, that I thought was way too big and included way too much land and endangered way too many farms. And I've been at that work ever since. So I've, I had got the chance to sit down or talk on the phone with Tom McCall when he was sort of spiritual leader of 1,000 Friends. I, I had the chance to work with a whole succession of, of leaders in the state legislatures we fought to strengthen and then save land use planning. Um, and I've, I've had this opportunity uh, in the twilight of my career to also serve in an elective capacity as a member of the only elected regional government in the country. Those are landmarks that Oregon established. And I think we need to remember that they happen within the life of people still living <laughs> and that they have shaped this state and this metropolitan area to look and function like no other. And we have an economic advantage. We obviously have a natural resources and nature advantage that we have to fight to protect and preserve. And in some way, pass on the information that if we can do it, anybody can do it, but we did it and we gotta keep it. Explain why a regional government in your view is important. Well, it did start with the urban growth boundary. That was the first thing that uh, Metro had to do when it was created out of the ashes of Craig by the legislature to ratify an urban growth boundary and get LCDC to approve it. Um, we, we, the region, used Metro to solve a landfill problem next. The St. John's landfill was full. The uh, EQ had tried to site a new regional landfill for the metropolitan area. Nobody wanted that sucker. So it was this new regional government that had to figure out how to contract with a big waste conglomerate to build a cost-effective landfill in the dry part of the state where we wouldn't have pollution from it, solving that problem. And then people looked around and said, hey, we're Multnomah County. We have all these parks that we can't operate anymore. 
or we're trying to give away uh, assets that tax the budget we need for human services, let's give them to Metro. And the city of Portland was losing money at the downtown theaters and performing arts facilities and said, well, we want to keep these assets, but let's hire Metro to figure out how they can run them for a profit. Um, the Oregon Convention Center was created because Metro put together the strategy to, to get that thing going. And we, we have a parks and nature program rivals any in the country outside of any city and inside the cities because the voters of Metro decided to solve the parks and nature and open space and environmental degradation of our rivers problems at the regional scale instead of parks district by city by parks district. Uh, no other metropolitan area has a tool this responsive to the voters and this capable of solving problems that present themselves at that scale. We went to Detroit as part of an ambassador's trip and saw... Oh, okay, yeah. What With could, Randy Miller? Yeah, and we saw what could happen with a metro area without an urban growth boundary, without a regional yeah. government, when the so much of the wealth of the city had fled the city and gutted it. What should we learn from the example of Detroit? Yeah, it's, it's the most powerful lesson, probably along with Cleveland, of what happens to American cities when there is no center left. Um, I was a kid, my dad was in the army, so I followed him from post to post when I was growing up. And I spent four years in grade school, about 20 miles north of Detroit, just off a 23 mile road. And we used to get on the school bus, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, safety patrol kids got their badges uh, to go to Tigers games downtown, uh, Briggs Stadium. We, we went to uh, Christmas pageants at this and fabulous uh, Ford Rotunda. Um, these were things that I hadn't seen before, just magnificent urban spaces, uh, lively street scenes. And then we go back to this rural uh, school <laughs> to spend most of our days. But that idea of a gleaming city that really worked and was prosperous uh, was what I understood of Detroit until it all fell apart and everybody was moving out to get away from black people. And it was, it was devastating. And, you know, Ann Arbor is sort of a suburb of Detroit. I mean, it's like the, it nearly hollowed out. And now it's, it's coming back. And, you know, like parts of Philadelphia, they're, they're planting gardens in what used to be home sites where the houses have been torn down and trying to rebuild neighborhoods. But it's starting from scratch instead of building on the great success that was there in the early 60s and then was devastated uh, by ignorance, by fear, and by disinvestment. Uh, we've avoided that. We got, we got uh, there before we had the immense size of, of the Detroit metropolitan area by establishing some, some standards, some planning tools. We still have deep racial animus and bias, uh, but it hasn't, it hasn't led to that kind of devastation that, that was fueled by economic forces that pushed development and jobs farther and farther away from the city. Uh, the urban growth boundary is just a way, uh, ultimately, of reminding us of a compact we've made as voters 
as citizens that we want to reinvest in where we live, not walk away from it. Detroiters walked away from their homes. We don't, we don't ever want to have that happen here, and we won't because we, we've made that compact and we've got to sustain it. If we use the, my examples of the rise of the Confederacy and the re-rise of neo-Nazis, what, not to say these things are equivalent, but to not, nonetheless understand the potential dynamics of what can happen when the champions of an important struggle are no longer around to champion that struggle. I know that was something that you worked on at Thousand Friends. How do we make sure that people still care about land use planning who weren't around uh, for the fights over the bottle bill and over public beaches and over the urban growth boundary? What are memories that you want to make sure are instilled in future generations, including current, including current generations of Oregonians and Portlanders, what are things you want to make sure they understand that you're worried people might forget? <laughs> well, the standard slideshow I used for many years and other people have used starts off with a little tour of what Portland was going through around 1970 uh, when uh, the site of the old eight-story Portland Hotel uh, right in the center of the city of Portland was a two-level parking structure uh, for Myron. And today, of course, we call that Pioneer Courthouse Square. And along the west side riverbank, along the harbor wall, there was a wide sidewalk and then eight lanes of road, uh, Harbor Drive, four lanes of expressway, followed by four lanes of Front Avenue. Um, there was a little there was one building in the middle of it, the old Oregon Journal building, but it was a sea of pavement. And today, of course, that's Waterfront Park. Um, the, the idea that you could do good things to, to restore past errors, uh, that you can reinvest in places and make them better, um, is a good reminder. It's also useful to remember what we still can do. Um, on a non-rush hour moment about three years ago, I uh, looked at, at Google Maps while I was standing at my front porch and realized I could be at Multnomah Falls in 25 minutes. Um, you can get to Soviet Island from the middle of Southeast Portland. Uh, you can get to the farm fields and, and uh, berry fields and, and produce stands uh, on the west side agricultural land. Uh, you can get to Salem, you can see the Willamette Valley, uh, you can experience great neighborhoods all over the region. And we need to remember that as we think about the things that aren't right. The fact that we're killing people every day on Division Street in the, in the hundreds. Uh, people are dying trying to get to the light rail station at 82nd Avenue by running across that, that road because it's, it's a crummy intersection. Uh, we are not taking care of our air quality in, in key places like uh, the, the school, Harriet Tubman, on the, on the sho shoulder of I-5 where ODOT is proposing to widen it and bring that freeway 20 feet closer uh, to Harriet Tubman. Uh, we know what we have. We have to protect it. We have to make it stronger. And we have to provide opportunities for people to share the experiences uh, that I have in inner Southeast Portland by building up, by doing more of what's happened on Division Street in the last decade, 
by doing it along Powell Boulevard as well, by adding light rail to Powell someday, by making sure that we tie east and west to the center through improvements in transportation that aren't about moving big machines with two people in them or one person in them, but moving people efficiently, safely, on foot, on bike, in a bus, carpooling, uh, and off-peak driving, not by building wider roads, but by using them more effectively uh, to move people more safely and efficiently. So it's, it's a story of what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it that points back to what we had and what we still have as opposed to what we lost. More and more we can talk about what we lost, what we kept or restored or improved upon rather than what we've lost or failed to protect. And I think that's, that's the message we have to continue to convey. Not a specific site like the Meyer and Frank parking lot that's now a park, but the idea that we can do that kind of thing again. Um, and we have the courage, wisdom, and sense of togetherness that makes us able to accomplish great things that other places can't accomplish. In terms of transportation, do you get frustrated? Do you get saddened that so much of the thrust of modern transportation funding feels a lot like transportation funding questions decades ago when much of that discussion is around highway widening and building freeway infrastructure? What's your feeling about that? Well, of course, our transportation department, not our highway department, has not only changed its name, but it's changed how it talks about what it does. We're not widening freeways. We're building auxiliary lanes to move people uh, in and out of the through lanes more efficiently. Uh, we're not adding capacity. We're reducing accidents. Now, this kind of doublespeak is, is in stark contrast to the utter silence about talking about what really works to move people more efficiently and make transportation via highway safer in the metropolitan area. And that's the dirty little word, decongestion pricing. When you, when you wake up in the morning and you, you look at, at Google Maps or Waze and you see that the fastest time is this way, um, what if you had a tool that told you that for this toll you could drive now or you could wait 45 minutes and have a lower price to drive that section of road or Here's an alternate. This bus line will get you there in 10 more minutes, but only this price. Um, that kind of comparative analysis at your fingertips is entirely possible nowadays. But we do need to say, yeah, it makes more sense for me to spend a buck 50 if I have to drive to downtown at rush hour, because that's what my work requires, than for all of us to pay with more air pollution, more traffic congestion at the exits, more stacked up traffic on wider highways, billions of dollars. And I think the choice is clear if you think about it just in common sense terms. I pay to ride the bus most weekdays. Uh, it doesn't cost much more uh, to convince some people to leave their car at home because the bus works for them and make room for the people who need to drive at rush hour for a small fee. So I think how we use our roads becomes more important than how fast we can build them wider. What are the prospects of decongestion pricing? Who should be the first mover? What needs to happen next? Well, I can say 
that study is already underway, both at the state level, which uh, the legislature directed the Oregon Department of Transportation to look at tolling on 205 and I-5 as part of the Rose Quarter and other freeway expansion projects, but acknowledged that time of day pricing may be the most effective way to toll. They're still looking at using it to raise money to build more roads. I'm looking as a way to manage the access that's available in the most efficient way possible. So that's the thrust of a Metro-led intergovernmental study that, that is cooperating with ODOT, which is focused on its own roads, with Portland, TriMet, the Port, and other partners to look at how a broader approach to pricing roadways at peak could work in an equitable way so it doesn't punish poorer drivers in a way that allows people to have choices and not forces them into a mode they can't use efficiently, but gives enough flex on the joints. About a 15% reduction of peak hour traffic means everything flows smoothly. Gives enough play in the joints uh, that you can have a conversation about benefits to every traveler. Uh, but that's gonna take a couple, three, four years to, to actually work through. And it's one of the key reasons I wanna be around for some of that, that discussion and uh, analysis and public engagement about how we can manage the things we have better instead of spending more money on making fatter roads. I would, you what, know, whatever. The way to move cars faster in Portland is to tear down people's homes and businesses, and I'm done with that. And so what do you think, what does the city council have to do next, or what does the metro council have to do next? Is it city and metro and state that all have to do stuff, or is there somebody who needs to be yeah. the prime mover? Well, we're, we're acting as the coordinating body, which is a role that Metro usually assumes at the outset. It'll be up to, to the people, the legislature, uh, the city council uh, to decide whether Metro should have a coordinating role or a managerial role, uh, or whether the owners of the facilities, you know, Portland owns its streets, Washington County owns its roads, ODOT owns its freeways, uh, whether they have to come into a master agreement about how the whole system will function. There still has to be a central central office that makes it all work at the right time of day, at the right traffic load, and uh, and adjust the price accordingly. So there will be some kind of central management, and where it's housed is less important than how it's constructed. I would like to have you come on again after the election, because I'm realizing there's a lot more I want to talk about, about understanding the past so we can help see the future and shape the future, that we're on the side of the folks who love Oregon and love Portland. We're on the side who want uh, the folks yeah. who want to make this a great place. Absolutely. We do need to spend some time on the election that you're engaged in right now. I think well, I thank just thank you for that, Jefferson. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I, I think you just said that one of your top priorities is gonna be and one of the reasons you're running for reelection is to pursue congestion pricing at the metro level. Did I get that right? That's correct, and I'm proud to say that. I'm not trying to tax people out of their cars. I'm trying to protect neighborhoods from efforts to tear down businesses, tear down homes, to make roads wider, when we know there are solutions that work in Stockholm, in London, uh, in Singapore. Uh, you know, they speak English in Singapore. I know they whip people for chewing gum, but uh, there are places around the world in democracies where this system works. It works in the core area of those cities. I'm talking about using it on a citywide or region-wide basis uh, to make traffic move more smoothly. And I'm proud to be labeled as pro-congestion pricing. 
What do you do and how do you address the income fairness element of this, right? That and already got a yeah. couple texts in that it's one thing. Yeah, buck 50. Uh, heck, when when Jeff Bezos, if he were fined a million dollars, it literally wouldn't matter. But a dollar yeah. fifty, there there are people for whom a dollar fifty matters, right? I mean, that's that's a that's budget right. for a meal a day. So how do you right. do? Uh, how do you address that? Well, what you, remember what you've got is you've got a transponder device underneath your your uh, dashboard uh, goes into your data port. Uh, it's keeping track of when you're driving and, and where you're driving, and the vehicle registration number of that car or you get a picture of a license plate for somebody who doesn't have the transponder that goes into a database that also has uh, information about the household income this is anonymized it's not you know joe dokes makes a hundred thousand dollars so he pays this but that household qualifies for this uh, public program whether it's snap food benefits or age-dependent children, uh, so they're they're in an income grouping that gives them a discounted rate automatically. So the bill they receive is is pared down by the by the discount available to low-income households and the cars that those households uh, use. Uh, that's that's one option that's being studied. How you ensure that you only get charged a tool that's Maybe something that makes you think about uh, finding another mode or carpooling, but doesn't force you to do that. It isn't out of line. And so the, the full toll is paid by people who can afford to pay it and who will think about it. And again, it's not intended to keep people from driving if they've got to drive. If you're taking kids to daycare and it's not at your work site and you've got them pick them up before the fine kicks in in the afternoon, you're going to drive. And you ought to be able to drive efficiently and faster than you do today on a freeway because there's congestion pricing. You need to get a benefit and you need to avoid a cost your household can't afford if you're in those other income categories and you have to drive. So there are ways to think this through. I'm not smart enough to figure them all out in advance, but we'll never have this until a majority of people see it as a fair, smart, and effective benefit to them uh, as drivers and other other people using our transportation system on foot, on the bus, cycling, or whatever. We've talked about housing and Metro getting in the housing business, right? 2018, yeah. passing the housing bond. Now in 2020, proposing the housing services fee. If you had right. looked back, you know, the dawn of Metro 30, 40 years ago, would it have surprised you that, I guess more than 30, 40 years ago now, would it have surprised you that Metro was engaging in housing and homeless services? Back then, uh, in 1979, yeah. Yeah, they were obsessed with the urban growth boundary and the garbage dump. Um, that was as far as Rick Gustafson could see at that point. But he knew that if there was going to be a regional government that would be capable of addressing regional problems, he had to solve the first ones thrown in his plate. Um, and it's that, <laughs> what you have in front of you, be a success and demonstrate that you can be successful in helping the region solve other problems. That's the same model that led us to be recruited to have a regional housing measure, led us to be recruited by the Here Together Coalition to uh, approve and pass on to voters 
uh, an ambitious effort to, <coughs> excuse me, to reduce homelessness by, by effectively funding existing programs that work to get people housed and keep people housed. Um, it's not because the charter says we're gonna do housing, it's because the community says we need to solve a problem that crosses city limits, lines, and county boundaries. And we've got a government that can do that. Now let's agree together on how it ought to proceed. Uh, we don't go off and say, hey, what can we take on next? We are drawn into discussions about how to solve a problem. And when the consensus emerges that it makes sense to solve it across all three counties and all 24 cities with one uniform program that everybody has a voice in but is administered at Metro, that's when we act. We've got to also then talk about garbage, and I don't. The housing issue is critically important. We had a chance to talk to Juan Carlos Gonzalez yeah. to include that in the local. If people want to listen to that, we'll have that uh, in the new the new daily local news podcast. I do want to ask you about garbage because you got an opponent in this race who is prioritizing garbage, believes that solid waste needs to be prioritized more, expand the use. I think I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, pyrolysis, a carbon neutral waste to energy process that converts carbon-based waste into fuel and charcoal. What do you have to say about that? Or what do you have to say about what we need to do to handle garbage? Well, I have been the one of, I've continuously been one of the liaisons uh, to Metro's solid waste reduction and re recycling program uh, for the eight years I've been on the council. So I've seen pyrolysis come and go. It was a hot idea in 2010, but it's cut. It means compressing a bunch of stuff, turning it, you know, essentially burning it in slow motion and turning it back into carbon. Um, instead of, as we're doing, getting organic material out of the waste stream, we have a program which once we're through with COVID and we have restaurants serving people again, we will be harvesting food scraps from major cafeterias, big restaurants, grocery stores, and we will be turning that into a slurry that produces uh, green methane that will be used in the Northwest natural grid in place of fossil fuel, natural gas. Um, that's not, you know, burning stuff. It's, it's converting into fuel for something that's already being uh, used from, from pumping it out of the ground to to using uh, stuff that grew last year and was eaten this year and now is a slurry that can be turned into methane. Um, we have increased recycling tonnage uh, during the time, my time on the council by doing more aggressive separation of materials. And we've reached the point where it's time to stop encouraging the plastics industry to substitute for gasoline as the main user of petroleum that's pumped from the ground. We've got to start reducing the amount of plastics we use. So we're looking at product bans. The, the, the single-use bag, plastic bag ban, we were strong proponents of that. We're taking on mattresses now because they're composites. They have to be uh, subject to a producer responsibility regulation to ensure that they're all returned so they can be separated. It's a relatively complex process into all the recyclable components. There are products that we shouldn't be selling in Oregon anymore uh, because there are, there are biodegradable or, or recyclable alternative packaging. Composite packages that mix layers of paper and plastic and aluminum are unrecoverable. We shouldn't be using them. And so 
I expect to see more legislation to regulate packaging and less burning stuff because it's a quick solution. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC, HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. We're talking to Bob Stacy, current member of the Metro Council running for re-election. Bob, where can people find out more? What's a closing word? Thank you very much. I, I'm proud to have served the region for these last eight years, and you can contribute at bobstacy.com. Uh, and please, uh, look at the voters' pamphlet and vote before next Tuesday. Bob Stacey, thank you so much for taking the time and thanks for your service. Thank you, sir. Be well.